Alright folks, I'm going to read from this book today called uh, Primitive Erotic Art by Philip Rawson. I'm going to read chapter 2 called Celtic and Northern Art. Celtic and Northern Art. I guess this section was written by Anne Ross. Alright, Paul Jacob Stahl, the greatest historian of Celtic art, in his description of a rock carving from the ancient sanctuary in the Val Camonica, northern Italy, says in connection with the great Celtic stag god, beside uh, Cernunos stands an orange, phallic, this is a regional or tribal feature because on the whole the Celts are decent. The adjectives decent or clean have also been applied to the literatures of the Celtic world and up to a point this would seem to be a fair assessment of their character. We shall return to this question later. All art must be an expression of the society which creates it. A social artifact. In order to understand anything about the art of a given people, it is essential to know something of the people themselves, their language, their national temperament, their attitudes to religion and taboo. The Celts do, in fact, require particular study for their thought processes particular study for their thought processes processes process processes were and are subtle and their art is a reflection of these complex symbolic suggesting rather than directly expressing devious confusing although they were included among the great barbarian peoples of europe by the classical writers the celts can be, by no means be regarded as primitive people for this reason, their art, although it bears in some of its aspects affinities with that of more northerly inhabitants of pagan Europe, pagan just means non-Christian, non-Catholic, the indigenous people basically. Pagan Europe, Germanic, Danish, Scandinavian, must be treated separately. One of the criteria of primitive peoples is the fact that, in general, they have not evolved a system of writing. Early Celtic society, however, is, to some extent, text-aided. It is true that the Celts did not commit their sophisticated culture to writing in their own language under the pressure of the Roman army, but later under the aegis of the Roman church. There's that word again, ages. That word is also um, mentioned in Greek mythology. The gods fighting over the ages. Interesting. They were literature in Greek. And the classical writers whose ethnographical observations add much valuable detail to what we can determine of the nature of their early social structure tell us that their 
not committing their own learning and lore to writing was deliberate. They believed that the practice of reading and writing weakened the memory. Interesting. And of course, that is also made available to the laity, the sacred lore of priest and poet. As a result, they evolved a powerful oral tradition, teaching being passed on verbally from master to pupil. Amazingly complex material was committed to memory, and it took many years to become a fully qualified priest or poet. This power of assim assimilating learning by word of mouth is so deep-seated in the Celtic tradition that it has persisted down to the present day in the surviving Celtic-speaking areas of Europe, in spite of all the pressures which combine to operate against such discipline and individuality of expression. Yeah, even in India, they continue this tradition, oral, oral tradition, memorizing the scriptures. As Robin Flower in his book on the Irish tradition says, the function of the poets was to keep alive this long-descended record in its full detail of genealogy and varied incident. It was inevitable that when this Namenic tradition met the Latin tradition of writing, it should be fixed in the new form which offered a greater guarantee of permanence. The kings and the poets and the clerics worked together to this end. Oh, and by the way, this book was published in 1973 in Great Britain. <laughs> Alright, the pagan Celts were an extremely interesting and complex people. And what is even more important to us today in our efforts to search back into the minds of the tribes who at the height of their power were masters of Europe, conquerors of Rome, threateners of Delphi and rulers of Etruria is the fact that they did not and have not ceased to exist. Their direct descendants are still to be found in the most westerly corners of Europe, speaking recognizably similar languages and possessing an archaism of tradition tradition attitudes and values which provide an invaluable link down the ages with their more formid formidable forebears. This greatly assists us in our attempts to understand what is and what is not likely within their cultural context. To return to Paul Jacob Stahl's statement, on the whole the Celts are decent, how far is this statement supported by their art and by the references to sexual custom in the classics and the insular texts? Celtic art can be divided into two distinct types. The first is that to which the term Celtic art is most usually applied, the art of the Latin Celts. Its great flowering began somewhere about 500 BC and continued until the conquest of the Celtic provinces by Rome, although in Europe it was more or less decadent by this time. It was the art of a powerful aristocracy. Celtic society was intensely aristocratic and also passionately devoted to religious practices. Caesar, for example, remarks, 
The whole Gallic people is exceedingly given to religious superstition. Art and religion were thus inseparable, and although this splendid art style of the Latin Celts, I don't know how to pronounce that, Latene Celts, Latin, which looks on the surface purely decorative, decorative, was derived originally from a variety of sources, naturalistic patterns based on plants and foliage, which the Mediterranean world delighted in. The splendid animal art of Scythia and more easterly regions, the old indigenous Hallstatt and Urnfield designs based on geometric patterns, and on the widespread European cult of solar birds in connection with deities of healing waters, and perhaps the old spirals found in such places as the Neolithic tombs of the Boyne Valley in Ireland and elsewhere. It is... Okay, it is full of magical and religious illusion, and fertility and sexual imagery may underlie the tortuous spirals and the strange swelling horns or fruits which emerge from the heads of many of the obviously divine masks used so effectively and frequently by the brilliant and inventive La Tene craftsmen. So if we think of Celtic art as being purely the art of this Latine phase and style, then it is true to say that there are very few examples of overt sexual or erotic expression. Jacob Stahl himself refers to only one other in his corpus of Latin art, and this itself is in question. If, uh, in question, it is a fibula from Niederschönhausen. A man lies on the upper surface of the bow. He would appear to be ethephallic, unless the object which appears to be an erect penis is in fact the tongue or muzzle of the ram's head which forms the lower part of the body. Um, Jacob Stahl does, in fact, also illustrate two stones which are clearly phalloid. One is decorated with symbols, while the other is more starkly naturalistic. The first comes from Falsfeld K. St. Gore in the Hunsruck, dating from the early phase of Latin art, that is from the 4th to 5th centuries BC and at one time over 6 feet in height. It was originally crowned by a male head which was destroyed in the 17th century. The glands rested on or in the ground and the four sides of the pillar are decorated with male heads having swelling horns or leaf crowns emerging from them. This stone is an excellent example of the fertility significance of the severed human head in conjunction with the stone pillar referred to in chapter 1. There were no doubt innumerable parallels to this stone fashioned from wood which has perished. 
The second phallic stone published by Jacob Stahl, likewise of early Celtic date, comes from Ehrlich, near Neuwied, in the, dis in the district of Koblenz, a region where there are many Celtic graves. The stone stood in the vestry of the old church and was brought into the new church when its predecessor was destroyed. According to local tradition, it promoted childbearing. The same honor was not accorded to an equally pagan stone in Guernsey, Guernsey in the Channel Islands. The so-called Grand Mare of St. Martin originally stood inside the consecrated ground of the churchyard. When people going to church passed her, they touched her head and made offerings to her. During the last century, she was removed from the sacred territory and placed immediately outside the gate of the church. Nevertheless, the local people continued to revere this mother goddess, touching her and making offerings to her. It is believed that if certain rites are correctly performed at the proper time, she not only confers favors on those who seek them, but can be seen to move and come to life. Many pagan stones concerned with old fertility cults still have names and ritual associated with them at the present day in the Celtic areas of Europe. Otherwise, Latin art based though it is on based though it is on swirling curving spiraling lines and abstract patterns of a complex nature is rich in portrayals of the animal and human world which emerge on close examination and once detected become obvious peering through the stylized foliage a human or rather superhuman mask can be seen, surmounted perhaps by a bird head or that of a ram or bull or horse or a whole complex of these. Shamanism? Contrary to popular belief, Celtic art, even at this stage, cannot be seen to have been an iconic, that is, without images. And it also seems certain and certain that the complicated and intricate patterns had in themselves some symbolic meaning, magical, even sexual in significance. But the key to these has long but the but the key to these has long been lost and like the secret language of the Celtic poets, Berla Nafild, the speech of the poets they must remain forever a matter for speculation, not interpretation. Just as this language was a code known to the elite, so was the meaning of this art, no doubt, reserved for the members of the privileged and intellectual classes, and, and as all the evidence suggests, common to man and woman alike, if they had attained sufficient rank and education. When, however, we come to more naturalistic forms, which both preceded and succeeded these highly complex designs and must have coexisted with them, we are on safer ground.
We know that the severed human head, universally worshipped by the Celts, was symbolic of divinity. All knowledge and fertility, the sacred birds, many of which had sex, sexual associations, were often the servants of the gods and sacred in their own right. The form adopted by deities for various purposes or forms of metamorphosis or of transformation as punishment for wrongdoing, the sinister owl had its role in sexual context as did the goat, the potent bull, the sacred ram. These things we have knowledge of because, although as we have seen, the Celts did not write down their own beliefs and traditions during their pagan phase, the classics commented on various of, the, various of these, and because of the strength and fidelity of the oral tradition, when the native cultural record did come to be committed to writing by the Christian scribes, much of the old learning and belief was preserved intact, and we get an amazing and remarkably faithful picture of the Iron Age Celts recorded at this later date. Although there is little that can be described as straightforward erotic art in the repertoire of the pagan Celts, it would be unrealistic to suggest that they differed from other peoples in sexual habit, engrossment, and portrayal. Sexual fulfillment and fertility clearly played as great roles in their society as they do in the entire sphere of humanity. And the use of magic to promote these activities must have been as prevalent in the Celtic world as elsewhere. It is with this activity that the second type of Celtic art is specifically concerned, in a frank and unequivocal way. The secondary, less sophisticated artistic tradition is frank and direct, concerned with the naturalistic as opposed to the symbolic portrayal of sexual objects and situations, a tradition which is shared with the peoples of the northern world and indeed with mankind down the centuries. We can therefore say that over and above the highly sophisticated art of the Latene aristocracy, there was an archaic and class-free art form with an impressive ancestry into prehistory and a persistence equally powerful and lengthy. Northern European pre-Celtic and Celtic miscellaneous fertility figures and symbols. One of the most interesting and early fertility figures from the British Isles is the figure fashioned from ash wood found beneath the bell track in Somerset and dating from the Neolithic period. Excavated in 1966, the figure was found set within a group of pegs which suggests that, that it was part of a ritual during the construction of the track and proves the figure to be contemporary with the original construction. The most interesting thing about this fetish christened by the excavators the God Dolly is that it is a is that it is hermaphroditic in form, 
It had been placed upside down beneath the later track known as Bell B. Six inches in height, it has a head, flattish but clearly demarcated breasts, and an emphatic phallus projecting from below the left breast. The figure was carved from a solid piece of ash, so no projecting branch of the tree was used to create the male organ. A deep linear groove runs down the back of the figure, and there is a similar line down the left side of the torso. One can only speculate on the rites attendant. One can only speculate on the rites attendant on this bisexual figure. Its position may suggest a foundation ritual, perhaps blessing the trackway. It is certainly an early British example of a wooden fertility figure, of which several are known from a much later period, although they are not hermaphroditic. There are one or two other emblems of fertility and sexual potency from this early phase of British and European prehistory. Representations of chalk phalli of a early phase of British and European prehistory. Sorry. Representations of chalk phalli of a naturalistic kind come, for example, from the Thick Thorn Barrow, Dorset, and Windmill Hill, Wiltshire, and elsewhere. Chalk figurines, chalk figurines of gross or pregnant women are also known from this early period. For example, the little chalk figurine from Grimes Graves, Norfolk, portrays a fecund female of a style found in other contexts of this date. Such images descended no doubt from the Paleolithic figures discussed earlier, continue the tradition of emblems of female sexuality and fecundity found down the ages. Another figurine of clay is in this instance has the features depicted by means of deep holes, while there is a round hole in the center of the forehead. The neck is as broad as the head, and the breasts are well defined. The figure was the figure was allegedly found in association with pottery of a Hallstatt type that is dating to somewhere about 600 BC. <clears throat> Another representation, no doubt, of some potent goddess <clears throat> in the form of a bronze statuette was found at Aust on Severn, at the base of the cliffs there. It was discovered in association with a figurine of a horned god now lost. The goddess wears a crescent-shaped headdress. The eyes were inset with glass beads, one of which remains. The hands are rigidly pressed to the sides. The breasts are firm and pronounced. Lack of any contemporary documentary evidence must, of course, leave the true significance of these early figures perpetually in doubt. Speculation can only be in the broadest of human terms. Another type of early portrayal of the human figure, the sexual potency and fertility associations of which cannot be in question, is found widely in Europe. Many examples come from the Scandinavian regions and from Spain and they form a link with the later wooden figures 
from the northern and Celtic areas. The Celtic language and the Semitic languages have a lot in common. I wonder why that's the case. Semitic, Shem. Where is Shem located on the world map, I wonder? Hmm. All these people, these fucking Zionists claiming to be, all these people who talk against Israel claiming them to be anti-Semitic. Well, where does that word originate from? Just look at, just look it up, Google it. Semitic languages make Semitic people. Indo-European. They claim that the origin of the Indo-European language comes from the Proto-Indo-European language, Pi, which is an invented language which borrows all its material from Sanskrit. Ham to Shem to Japhet, out of Africa to India, out of India to Europe. It's the, it's the migration pattern of humans, of ants on lily pads. If you look at the world's mountains, they literally follow that migration pattern. Volcanic, volcanic explosions leads to ants on lily pads looking for newer resources. Genetic mutations occur because um, lack of sunlight, so the human adapts so that it can absorb as much vitamin D as it can. I mean, it's all there. And then now you come with all these uh, uh, archaeological evidence of the similarities between Africa, India, and Europe. I mean, anyways, man, it's just... Okay. Many examples come from the Scandinavian regions and from Spain, and they form a link with the later wooden figures from the northern and Celtic areas. In general, they consist of representations of emphatically phallic men engaged in some activities such as hunting, fighting, sorcery, or ball games. <laughs> They are not usually shown in company with women, nor is the sexual act depicted. One rock carving from Bohuslan, West Sweden, shows men with erect genitalia engaged in a ball game with sticks, reminiscent of Shinti sticks. That the game had some ritual significance is suggested by the nakedness of the men and their ithophallic state. Field or board or board games are often described in early Irish tales as taking place when some ritual or magical situation is in progress. I mean, lit literally, the Roman Catholic Church went around the world colonizing the indigenous people and rewriting their history. That basically said we all were related, came from, you know, the same group DNA gene pool of survivors who survived a major 
volcanic catastrophe. Anyways. Um, similar naked figures armed with stick and ball are known from the Romano-British iconographic repertoire, the main difference being that they are not phallic. Ritual nakedness is, of course, well known and widespread in early religions, and many examples of it occur in the Celtic literatures. In the Irish mythological story, the destruction of Da Durga's hostel, interesting, Da Durga's hostel, Da Durga sounds a lot like Durga, the the Hindu goddess, Durga. The king elect sets out on a bird chase. He does not know what he does not know that his mother was seduced by a supernatural birdman, and that these birds are in fact magical. His father and his followers. It has been foreseen by one of the wise men that the king to be would be seen going along the road towards Tara. Tara is another Hindu Indian goddess. One of the most important pagan sanctuary sites in Ireland, stark naked and having a stone and a sling in his hands. Conair's bird father told him of this. A man stark naked who shall go at the end of the night along one of the roads of Tara have a sling and a stone, he shall be king. Hags having strong sexual characteristics are also introduced into this tale and are discussed later. Three men, phallic and thus probably engaged in some sacred activity, are engraved on a rock at Zalav Ruga, White Sea, Russia. Look, three men, doesn't that, doesn't that, um... Uh, Remind you of Abraham meeting three men? Huh? They move on skis and hold ski sticks in their hands. Another scene involving naked, seemingly dancing figures, male and female, is engraved on rock at Adora, Sicily, and probably dates from the 9th century BC. Much later, from about the 1st century BC, and from a sanctuary site at Neuvi and Sulias, Loiret, therefore of incontestably religious import, are two superb bronzes of a man and a woman dancing. Hmm. Man, woman, bronze statue dancing. Doesn't that remind you of Hindu iconography, Hindu god goddess ideas? Their faces are wrapped, their bodies exquisite. Exquisite and sensitively depicted. The man, however, is not ithophallic. A magnificently phallic man or god is drawn on a rock at Skane, Sweden. The figure dates from the 8th or 7th century BC. He holds a gigantic ritual axe, a weapon with strong religious associations. Again, from Bohuslan, Sweden... A horned and phallic sorcerer or god, fingers splayed and unequal in number, seemingly rides a wheeled chariot preceded by a horned animal. The unicorn, shamanism, the sun mythology symbolism. Everybody worship the sun because if you're going through a dark age because of volcanic winter, you're going to want that sunlight, vitamin D, 
for everything, life, food, everything. This leads us on to a series of phallic wooden figures dating from the late Bronze Age or early Iron Age. Some, like the superb male figure in the National Museum at Copenhagen, have a huge penis carved in one with the body. Others, like those from Roos Carr, Yorkshire, a pine, of pine wood, have deep holes for the insertion of the male organ, which may originally have been made of wood or perhaps some symbolic substance. Four of these superb figures stand in a boat. One holds a circular shield in his left hand. Another similar figure was found with this group. He too has the hole for the phallus and holds a circular shield in his left hand again. One can only speculate on the magic and ritual that must have been attendant on the insertion of these phalli. Well, instead of a shield, you can imagine that of a shaman's drum, right? It doesn't have to be a shield. You look up shamans and their round drums right it's it it has the handle in in the middle in the back of of a cross to hold the the drum that could be viewed as that probably got called a shield but it was probably a drum another from dagenham essex shows similar features an impressive male figure from rolagan near shercock county cavan ireland Likewise, has a sinister aspect and a deep hole for the insertion of a penis. It was found earlier in this century in an area rich in, tra tr in traces of the supernatural and pagan Celtic cults in general. When it was dug up from the bog, by good fortune, a local schoolmaster, a native of the place, happened to be present. The man who chanced upon it not only failed to realize its archaeological importance, but viewed it with strongly superstitious eyes. He said that people had been turning up carved sticks like this one in the same bog for a long time, and they didn't like them, and so threw them back into the bog hole. The sticks could be the, the, the sticks that they played the drums with, right? So the whole drum and stick symbolism got turned into shield and sword, right? Could be. So before it was shield and sword, it was it was drum and stick. <laughs> okay, anyways, and this must have been the fate of numbers of cult figures in Ireland thrown back into the bogs, reburied where they had been dug up in fields or smashed up because of their known pagan associations. Isn't it just funny how people don't want to admit their history, their own history? They, they are denying their own history. And it, by doing that, they are denying their own fucking, fucking heritage. Another male fertility figure, the phallus carved one with the body, was found in, found at Tag, Tagengrace, Devon. A pair of such wooden fertility figures, long and stick-like, was found at Schleswig Holstein. One of these is male with a carved penis, the other female with breasts and genitals indi indicated. 
Another female figure with a markedly fearsome and hag-like appearance and probably dating from the early Celtic period was found at Balachulish Argyll in Scotland. That almost could sound like Baluchistan. Balachulish. Okay. Preserved in the peat soil together with traces of wicker work which must have been used to house her in her remote shrine, she must have presented a sinister sight in her full splendor. Where do where does the history of shrines come from? Hmm? Shrines were created for gods and goddesses. Where does that take you back to? You Indo-European bastards. Bastards who have forgotten their fucking history. Exposure to air caused rapid shrinking of the wood, but even so, the menacing features, eyes inlaid with pebbles, and the well-defined sexual organs place her amongst the category of powerful hag-like goddesses discussed below. Hag-like, you can just think of shaman, shamaness. Hag, shamaness. However, such wooden figures distributed in Europe and the British Isles are, on the whole, male and have a clear association with fertility rights involving male sexual power. Such images as these must be what Lucan had in mind when he describes the sacred places of the Celts so graphically. And there were many dark springs running there, and grim-faced figures of gods uncouthly hewn by the axe from the untrimmed tree trunk rotted to whiteness. Where does the uh, history of carving god, goddesses, figures out of wood come from? Where does it come from? Hmm? Where they carve god, goddess figurines into the tree trunk. Somewhat later in date, belonging perhaps to the early Romano-British period, is the famous chalk-cut figure on the hill above Cern Abbas Dorset. Abbas. Abbas. Where, where does that name come from? Abbas. Known as the Cern Abbas giant, this British Hercules, with his all-conquering club, like that of the great Irish god the Dagda and his huge penis and testicles has survived through the centuries dominating the surrounding countryside defying the church and remaining down to the present day a powerful fertility symbol even with all the Roman and Greek gods statues of them having the giant clubs <laughs> huh what 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 uh, what verse was that? Ezekiel twenty three twenty, right? Huh? What what do those clubs symbolize? <laughs> Young couples about to be married still resort to him, and it was believed in the district that to have sexual intercourse within the hollow of the vast phallus could only have beneficial results. The Irish Dagda, the great god of the early Irish mythological race known as the Tuatha de Danann, 
even back all the way in Korea, the the their creation of mythology called um, involving the character Dangun, Twatha de Danan, Dangun, and in India, um, Danu. People of the goddess Danu is described as possessing a huge, all-powerful club. And although there are no erotic descriptions of him, he is reputed to have mated with many powerful goddesses in a ritual manner. He had intercourse, for example, with the sinister war raven goddess, the Morrigan, whose sexual lust was as powerful as her desire for blood and carnage. This character Morrigan is also present in Indian mythology, Hindu mythology. Morrigan. Morrigan. I think South India mythology. Morrigan. I think so. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. The Dagda had a house in Glen Etin in the north. Also in... um, also, the word Allah apparently comes from South India. For the word for banyan tree, the which is Alamaram. Alamaram is the word for banyan tree. The Arabic numbers originate from India. So, if the numbers originate from India, where did the words come from? Alamaram. Banyan tree. Banyan tree is related to the fig tree. Fig tree. Adam and Eve. They made uh, uh, clothes out of the fig leaves, right? It wasn't an apple that they ate. It was a fig. The Dagda had a house in Glen Etin in the north. Now the Dagda met a woman in Glen Etin on that day about the Samain, Halloween of the battle. Halloween. Samain means Halloween. The river Unius of Connacht roars to the south of it. He beheld the woman in Unius in Koran washing herself with one foot at Alod Eke to the south and to the south of the water and the other at Los Queen to the north of the water. Nine loosened tresses were on her head. I think all this stuff is symbolism for geography. The Dagda conversed with her and they made a union. The bed of the couple is the name of the place after that. The woman mentioned here is the Morrigan. Here we have a powerful, virile, pagan pagan god when he is sexually united with the highly dangerous, essentially female war goddess with her ominous crow-raven transformations. We do indeed have a potent coupling. Also, all the symbolism for these animals, birds, whatever... You could view as uh, the the animal symbol different clans used to represent themselves. So you have the bear clan, the raven clan, the wolf clan, the
the unicorn clan, whatever. Different tribes were symbolized by different animals. And usually they were mythological animals. Even in the story of Noah, right? First he set out a raven, right? So, are these just symbols for different tribes? Probably. And all these different mythological stories are just stories of geograph geographical changes in nature on this planet? Most probably. The, the song, the lava song from the movie Moana is basically symbolically telling the story of Genesis chapter 1, Orogenesis, the formation of an island from an underwater volcano. Geographical stories symbolized into stories with human characters. Even the the even the Hesiod, the Greek mythological epic poet poem, the Hesiod, is probably geographic stories. Okay. And when, as in this instance, the union is carried out in association with a mighty river, yeah, see, it's it's all geographic. Then the erotic nature of the situation is very clear. Even all, a lot of these Hindu mythological stories could just be talking about geography, changes in geography. Geographical changes of this planet. Okay. The Celts worshipped water and believed it to have strong powers of, con of conveying fertility. An interesting link between this passage and the Gaulish tradition is found in the fact that the war raven goddesses are also known from Gaul. There are examples of personal names such as Bozu Boduagnatus or Boduagenus, born or descended from the goddess Bodb, showing her showing her reputation as an Eponymous ancestress. Eponymous ancestress. One of her names in Gaul was Nantosuelta. Nantosuelta. She of the Winding River. A name which again links her with the fertilizing powers of water. Yeah, it's just geography turned into fucking... Mythology with human... They swapped geographical landscapes with human characters. It's, it's, it's Moana. It's, that's what the Hawaiians have been doing. All these island people, all their mythology, even the fucking um, uh, aborigines of Australia, their creation myth includes volcanoes, right? They... they they anthropomorphize the geography into fucking human characters so they can have a creation story. That's their oral tradition, the story, images in a certain sequence. Okay. <clears throat> Her mate is Sucellus, the good striker. Sucellus, the good striker, the European counterpart of the Irish Dagda, the good god. The good god. 
Jordan Maxwell, take one O out of good, becomes God, the good God. Okay, God is good all the time, all the time God is good, right? Sucellus has the mallet and his dish of plenty as his fertility attributes. But the Dagda, although... But the Dagda, although he is reminiscent of the club-wielding chalk figure of Hercules at Sern Abbas, is never portrayed in the, liter in the literary tradition as exceptionally sexual or ethophallic. There is, however, another hero or divinity who has more claims in this direction than the Dagda. This is the powerful Fergus, Fergus MacRoyk, Fergus son of Great Horse. The name itself being suggestive of virility. Roik means horse. Fergus Mac Roik. So Mac I think means great. Like Big Mac. Fergus son of great horse. Roik means horse. Interesting. The name Fergus also means choice of men, and so his role as an Irish equivalent of the Cern giant seems clear. His penis is described as being seven fingers in length. He mates with... <laughs> God. It's a, yeah, son of great horse, so he probably had a big dingus, right? <laughs> seven fingers in length. He mates with the great divine queen Mebd, Medb, drunk woman, whose own sexuality is boundless. Her many husbands were mere passing bedfellows. Only Fergus, with his tremendous sexual capacity, could satisfy her. His mate was Phlidais, goddess of the woodlands and wild things. She was mistress... <laughs> It's so funny, man. I guarantee you, sex had a big-ass role in human fucking language, consciousness. It, Beauty and the Beast is nothing but sex being, being used to do, basically domesticate us humans. From fucking animal beasts into, well human <laughs> we're not human we're we're fucking animals okay um she was mistress of the animals provider of dairy produce and venery and venery for the people a celtic equivalent a celtic equivalent of the classical diana descended from and successor to the paleolithic prototypes the virility of her mate is indicative of her own sexuality. There are many tales concerned with amorous situations in which birds, especially swans or geese, are involved. These contain little of a sexually suggestive nature, however, or are rather distinguished by their restraint and delicacy. Birds are employed as messengers to facilitate communication between lovers or as the form <coughs> or as the form adopted by lovers of either sex in order to meet mate with or carry off the loved one sometimes for the purpose of bringing about the conception of some superhuman hero 
Yeah, all the bird symbolism, all the artwork with swans and geese is it's all sexual in nature. The bird is basically a symbol for the penis. The horned phallic god of the pagan Celtic world. There are two distinct types of Celtic deity depicted in the iconography and described in the literature whose sexuality and powers of fertility are consistent and clear. The first of these is one of the most basic of the Celtic god types, with an, a with an ancestry in Europe which takes us right back to the imagery of the Swedish and the Spanish rock carvings and beyond into an indefinable past. This is the horned phallic god of the Celtic tribes, aggressive, fertile, bull or ram horned, or antlered and non-phallic, his powers of fertility indicated by his branching antlers, symbolic of male strength, and his obvious concern with matters of fecundity and fertility. Abraham sacrificed a ram, right? Aram, Abram, Abraham, Brahmin, Indian, <laughs> Hinduism, Jordan Maxwell, um, Ram, Zodiac sign, Bull, Zodiac sign. It's all the same story. The zodiac wheel, right? The different ages. The hero's journey. The Ouroboros. Volcano crater. It's, it's the great mother goddess. She coming. <laughs> like, it's all, the sun is a circle. The moon is a circle. The planet is a circle. It's, Anyways, there's nothing new under the sun, man. They just take the same stories, same symbols. Okay, there's also another type of fierce and phallic divine warrior, but he is figured without horns. We all come out of a circle. The earliest Celtic portrayal of the antlered god occurs in the ancient sanctuary in the Val Camonica in northern Italy where for centuries the evolving peoples of Europe gave expression to their religious ideas on the rock faces of this sacred place. Even, the, even in America, they still carry the same traditions, right? They, they carve the faces of the presidents on the rock on mountains, right? It's the same symbolism. The Celtic drawings must date from the time of the Celtic conquest of Etruria, that is, from round about 400 BC. The antler god is known from one inscription only as Cernunos, the horned one. This may well not have been his name throughout the Celtic world, because the Celts had few divine types, but many divine names. The great god of fertility and prosperity of stocks, commerce, and man himself stands chastely in a full-length Chiton, Chiton, Chiton. He is antler bearing and has over his right bent arm the sacred neck ring, the torque, T O R C, worn by gods and heroes alike. 
Over his left bent arm are traces of the horned serpent, which was most consistent, uh, his most consistent cult animal, the horned serpent. Interesting. The horned serpent. Is that like an astrological symbol? Okay. The relationship between the serpent and sexuality is widely diffused. To endow the beast with the horns of a potent ram would be to create a highly apotropic and fecund symbol. The god is covered, but his worshipper, smaller in size and having his hands raised in the same Oran's posture as the god, a posture used by the Celts for prayer, is markedly epiphallic. It is noteworthy that this great and ancient antlered god never appears in phallic form, but as we have noted, his great branching antlers and his potent, potent horned serpent companion are indications of his own undeniable virility. Yeah, even Shiva in India has the serpent around his neck. So what does Shiva represent? Hmm? The Shiva Lingam, what does that represent? He is widespread in the Celtic iconographic repertoire of Europe, and there are traces of him in the vernacular literatures where he figures as a great warrior connected with a mighty serpent, but never as a lover or as being symbolic of male sexu sexuality, as does, for example, Fergus in Irish lore. The second type of horned god is likewise associated with pastoral pursuits, with the rearing of stock, with war, and sometimes with venery. He is known in Europe and he figures largely in North Britain, where in Roman times he was sometimes likened to Mars the warrior. It is in this guise that he appears, for example, at Maryport, Roman Alona, Probably a um, lunar deity. Even Moses is depicted with horns, right? Because he worshipped a lunar god, Sin, Semitic lunar god named Sin, S-I-N, Jordan Maxwell, at Bro by Sands and elsewhere. He is naked, strongly ethophallic, holding shield and spear. Once again, that could be um, the shaman's drum and stick, shield and spear, barbarous and menacing, equipped for battle and prepared to deal death and to convey life. Sometimes both gods and horned animals are depicted with horns having knobbed ends. This is a problematic feature. I mean, even now, just look up anything to do with shamanism. They have a shield and a sword, their drum and stick, and they're usually wearing masks with horns. It was customary to bind the horns of bulls being prepared for sacrifice, and this may indeed be the significance of these bulbous horns. Yeah, the age of Taurus. Then we went to the age of the ram. Then we went to the age of Pisces, the fish. Then we went to the age... Now we're going to, into the age of uh, Aquarius. The man or woman with the water pitcher, right? 
It cannot, however, be denied that in many instances the combination of horn and knobbed terminal gives the impression of a phallus, creating, like the addition of ram horns to the sacred snake, a very powerful fertility symbol indeed. Sometimes in Roman context, the horned god was likened to Mercury, no doubt in his earlier role as the protector of the flocks and herds. Each age is basically uh, ruled by a certain planet, a certain zodiac symbol, right? And that's what they end up worshipping, symbolizing in their rituals, religions, whatever. As above, so below. The heavens is nothing but the sky, the night sky. Because only by viewing the other stars and planets do we know what time um, the planet Earth is in. The 12 hours on a clock or the 12 months. The middle section in the Mongolian zodiac, the in the center, is where they... Uh, uh, light the the hearth fire, the fire in the center of the yurt, right? The zodiac symbols represented by animals that come out during that time of the year. The hearth fire in the middle representing time. Uh, the 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 hands on the clock, hour, minute, second. This is how you keep time, right? The calendar, circular uh, uh, representations. The Mayans and all these ancient, ancient, ancient civilizations represented the calendar as a circular symbol. The Ouroboros, volcano crater, clock, time, timekeeper. First shall be last, last shall be first, time. Okay, um, here too he is usually ethophallic but carries instead of weapons the purse and wand of the classical god. The sinuous serpent winding around the caduceus is once more in accordance with Celtic tradition. Again, the horned god appears as a kind of native Sylvanus god of the woods, naked and without attribute, apart from his huge penis. Yeah, that's the timekeeper. <laughs> that's the sundial, the monolith that stands erect to keep track of time. In North Britain, another type of naked phallic god is figured, but without the horns, therefore presumably of the CERN giant type, bearing arms or without attribute. A deity of similar type, uh, fierce and aggressively phallic, comes from Maastricht, Holland. The male horned beast is fierce in combat and competent in the sexual sphere. It is not then surprising that in early societies, the men relying on their own physical strength in battle and their personal ability to increase the numbers of their tribe or group by their procreative powers should have envisaged their gods as combining the powers of the male animal with their own anthropomorphic form and attributes. Yeah. I mean, it's not that complicated. Man is the timekeeper, right? Grandfather clock 
right? Wood carved out of a tree trunk to keep time. The, 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 what's it called? The trunk of the tree represents what? The penis, the club, whatever, the spear, the sticks, the round drum, shield, circle represents the vagina, right? The, the stick beats the, the circular drum to produce sound. I mean, come on, man. Is, is it that complicated, huh? It, it's when, <laughs> when the drum is being pounded, it produces the sounds like, oh my god, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, oh my good god, my goodness, oh my goodness, ohm, sound, <laughs> omg. Oh my good god. Okay. The drum be getting pounded by the stick, right? The, the spear getting thrust in to the flesh, right? Okay, anyway. This, it's not that complicated. It's just symbolism, man. It's just fucking symbolism. Before leaving the direct imagery of the phallus for the sexual symbolism of the human head... We must glance at one monument where the two concepts most clearly meet and merge, and where the implied sexual significance of the stone is made implicit by surviving local traditions about it. Yeah, all these uh, stone, basically dildos that, you know, archaeologists dig up all the time. I mean, <laughs> is it like all, like, I'm just... This is just uh, this is just a joke. All these feminists complaining about, you know, talking about um, all these so-called robots being built as sexual or, or not robots. Um, well, they're building robots too, but all these dolls being created as uh, sex toys. Well, let me ask you: Can somebody out there do? Do some research on how many dildos have been created. I mean, I'm just saying, if you, if you're gonna, you gotta you gotta look at both sides, right? How many dildos have been fucking created on this planet since the beginning of time, huh? Okay, um, it came originally from Maryport, Alona, where there are several examples of the horned god. Now, part of the Netherhall collection, it is known locally as the Serpent Stone. Natives of the area believed it to have phallic associations, and fertility rites are said to be have been performed in connection with it. One side of the stone is decorated by a thick serpent, thick serpent, crested, <laughs> a variant of the male symbolism of the horn, and collared thick ser- and collared in the act of swallowing a fish. Hmm. Horn, unicorn, corn, symbolism, fish. I mean, come on. On the other, <laughs> you cannot. You cannot. Once you see the image, you cannot unsee it. Once you hear the sound, you cannot unhear it. Okay. 
Um, on the other side is a fierce male head, like a dick head, male head, dick head, male head. The mouth seemingly in the attitude of shouting or screaming. The neck is adorned by a torque with knobbed terminals. Why would this guy be uh, shouting or screaming? <laughs> All the sex pills, right, are symbolized with a bunch of animals, right? Tiger, donkey, bull. Why, why, why are sex pills? Okay. The association of the severed head with a pillar stone had a clear phallic significance for people such as the Celts. Also, why would after, like back in the day when they would behead certain leaders of tribes and stick them up in a spear, what, what would that symbolize? This is, this is it. That tribe has been beheaded. Stuck up on this spear of the enemy or whatever, the conquering enemy. Meaning that line of people has been severed from this head, right? This ram's head, this bull's head, this whatever, horse's head. Meaning this guy cannot produce any more babies. <laughs> okay. The association of the severed head with the pillar stone had a clear phallic significance for a people such as the Celts. Before returning to the sexual symbolism of the human head and its place in Celtic religious art and life, we will look at another remarkable group of figures from the Caucasian mountains, this time testifying to the widespread cult of ithophallic deities or heroes in prehistoric pre Europe as elsewhere. This group forms part of the remarkable Kazbek treasure and has features which are also known in the Celtic world. The hoard was found when the military road was being made in the last century and it has the appearance of a religious deposit in a pool formed by a spring nine feet under the present ground. A silver bowl filled with little bronze figurines and tied uh, round with chains was discovered associated with a grave. Several of the figurines portray an emph emphatically phallic man. Sometimes well advanced in years, in one instance he holds a double hammer and stands on the curly horns of a bull head. Hammer time. Other figures disport themselves on goat horns. One pair, both if phallic and naked, have their knees bent. One is actually engaged in depicting. One is actually engaged in de decapitating the other. This group would seem to demonstrate admirably the sexual link between the severed head, the phallus, and horns. Yet another naked figure, ithophallic and with a shield in his hand, stands bent kneed above the horns of a goat, and an ithophallic old man plays a lyre. Prisoners and their captors are depicted in this remarkable deposit of bronzes, and the fact that all are phallic suggests the ritual significance of this material. Pendants also occur. Some of these in the form of men are extremely interesting. One has a pair of twin spirals on the shoulders and on the buttocks. The penis is fully erect and the testicles well-defined. 
Another figure holding a drinking horn has even more pronounced genitals. There is also an impressive series of horned animals with the horns pronounced but the genitalia not emphasized. What's new, man? Men have been sending dick pics since fucking the beginning of time, man. What's fucking new? The combination of horned beasts, ethophallic man, and other symbols together with the close association of a spring and probably a pool indicate an ancient Caucasian fertility rite somewhere between 1000 and 600 BC. This leads us on to the most highly significant sexual symbol for all of the Celts, that of the human head, especially in conjunction with a pillar stone or a sacred spring. Yeah, Jacob set up a stone, right? The Where he met God face to face. <laughs> a Shiva Lingam with a face on it. The fertility powers of water are well known. Even, even stories of Moses striking the rock out of which water came out from, right? Okay. The combination of these objects was a very potent one. The Celts, like many barbarian peoples, were headhunters. But the severed human head was no mere trophy or military success. They preserved the heads they took in battle in oils and, and herbs, and either kept them in wooden chests in their houses, displayed them on stakes round their houses and hill forts, or set them on pillars in their sacred groves and temples. Wow, I did not know that they did that. They would even preserve them in... That's where that comes from, I guess. After you go hunt the animal, you set their head up. Um, I forget what was that called? The preserving the... Okay. They also made heads from stone, wood, or metals. They must have carried these about as amulets or as icons portraying some particular deity or power. The archaeology of the Celtic world supported by classical writers testifies fully to this belief in the powers of the head. But it is in the vernacular literatures of the British Isles that the full meaning of the severed human head for the Celts is illuminated. They believed it to be the seat of the soul, the very center of being. This must, include in, this must include in it the powers not only of prophecy, all wisdom and entertainment, but of generation itself. The head was a symbol of fertility and for this reason it is the head, not the phallus, that is figured most frequently in the Celtic iconographic tradition. Yeah, how do you kill a snake? By cutting its head off. Heads were believed to be capable of presiding over the feasts so dear to the Celts and thus to provide all good things. Often the deity was portrayed merely as a head with or without specific attributes. They took stones of suggestively phalloid shape and either surmounted them with a human head or drew a face on the glands thus creating a powerful fertility symbol. Even now, look up. Just go look up Shiva Lingam. Lingams with faces on them. There you go. By the time this tradition went more west, it, it became like... I mean, 
People all over the world have been doing this, setting up stones with faces on them. What do they symbolize? What do they symbolize? Okay, um... One such stone from Broadway, Worcestershire, is so shaped. On the glands, which is in fact formed by the head, is a crude human face. From Egypt, Dorset... Wow, so this is spelled... No, no, it's not, not Egypt. It's Iep. E-Y-P-E. From Ipe, Ipe, Dorset, comes a large pebble, again phallic in outline, on which is cut a somber, somber countenance. Below this are four interlaced circles of obscure significance. Okay, obscure significance. A stone somewhat similar to that from Broadway comes from Roman Corstopitum, Corbridge, Northumberland. And such examples could be multipli multiplied indefinitely. The setting of the head on a pillar is also a method of creating a special phallic image which unites the powers of these two potent parts of the body. The heads of men taken in battle were given to the highly sexual and awesome raven goddess, or rather, trio of goddesses. According to the 9th century glossary of Cormac, such offerings were known to known in the Irish tradition as Mesrad Makay, Maka's mast. So the symbol of the three goddesses, or, or trio of goddesses, the trinity of goddesses, is basically basically the three um, aspects of the moon cycle. Uh, new moon, full moon, uh, and then going into the dying moon. It's just the, the three aspects of the moon. The trio of goddesses, the original trinity. This again stresses the sexual symbolism of the head and brings to mind, as a funny way of putting it, this again stresses the sexual symbolism of the head and brings to mind the sinister statue from a grotto at Vence near Marseilles, which depicts a seated woman with a sharp beak-like face holding in her lap not an infant but a severed male head a similar image is the woman from a tomb at Esperan in the Rhone Valley naked and voluptuous who stands with her hand resting possessively on a human-headed and phallic stone pillar this imagery is again strongly illustrative of the theme of fertility and regenerative powers the qualities possessed by the all-fertile head are well illustrated in the insular literary tradition. One example is that of the head of the great warrior Conganchness. In his head, three magical dogs were generated, and the skull of another divine hero used to supply the whole of Ireland with milk. The sacred head of the Welsh divinity Bran, meaning raven, 
had likewise all the qualities of a good Celtic head, both providing and entertaining at the sacred feast. I wonder if um, the head of Medusa that that would turn everything into stone also has similar background. Okay. Other stones not decorated by heads but associated with fertility occur widely in the Celtic world. One of the most famous of these is the Turo stone from County Galway in Ireland. Of granite and nearly four feet high, it is decorated by spirals of a late Celtic style which dates it, or at least its decoration, to somewhere between the 1st centuries BC and AD. It has clear phallic significance and it may have been one of the sacred stones known in Ireland to have been associated with the rites attendant on the inauguration of kings. The king was thought to be responsible for the fertility and prosperity of the tribe or people over whom he ruled. His inauguration was therefore extremely important and attended by rites of which we now have only veiled hints. Yeah, they turned, they took all this symbolism and just, that's all they do, man. They take old symbols and remix them and give them new meanings that have completely lost their connection with <laughs> nature. It is clear, however, that his own virility was a vital, was as vital as his powers of judgment and authority. In this connection, we must consider the Celtic goddess in her equine form. Yeah, this is the part I wanted to get to. The Celtic goddess in her equine form, meaning her horse form. There is evidence that one of the most powerful and widely worshipped of the Celtic goddesses was a deity having the horse as one of her attributes or metamorphosis. Her name varied throughout the Celtic world. In Gaul, she was known as Epona. There's a bunch of images in here also. I might, I might include them. Epona, great horse. She appears in Wales as Rhiannon, great queen. In the Irish tradition, she figures as Maka, the eponymous goddess of Emain Maka. The Navan Hillfort in County Armagh. Arma. Sexuality is strongly marked in this deity, and there is some evidence that she, or rather her animal equivalent, played an important role in the inauguration of the kings of Ireland in pagan times. Pagan means indigenous times. Before Roman Catholicism went and colonized these people, that was the indigenous. Um, traditions they followed. Even as late as the 12th, I mean, literally, even in North America, you have the Roman Catholic Church come in, fuck up all the tribes, put their kids into these schools where they got molested, brainwashed, couldn't speak their own language, couldn't follow their own traditions, had to be brainwashed into the dick-worshipping cults of Roman Catholicism, right? Where they erased the female goddess archetypes and they replaced them all with dickheads. 
with dickhead archetypes. Now you have all these pastors going around dressing as women, right? Getting busted, going around fucking... Man, yeah, because if you delete the feminine archetype from the human psyche, which is in us from fucking time immemorial... What do you think is going to happen? There's going to be an imbalance in the human psyche. And to counter that, you're going to get all this. Anyways. Anyways. It's it's all inside us. All the symbols, the gods, angels, demons, whatever you want to say. All the images are in, are inside us. And they're going to come out. If you keep trying to suppress them, they will come out in all sorts of weird forms. As Carl Jung said, you cannot suppress... Okay. Um, blah, blah, blah. Inauguration of the kings of Ireland in pagan times. Even as late as the 12th century AD, traces of such a custom survived to be recorded by the shocked and hostile Giraldus Cambrensis in his itinerary of Ireland he writes he writes of one of the northern Irish tribes whose chief or king was made to simulate sexual intercourse with a mare mare m-a-r-e meaning female horse nightmare yeah mare no doubt a memory of the goddess in horse form once this was enacted, the beast was immediately slain and ritually eaten. Geraldus describes the ceremony in the following terms. A whole people of that country being gathered in one place, a white mare. So over here, it's a female horse, a female white horse. A white mare is led into the midst of them, and he who is to be inaugurated, not as a prince, but as a brute, not as a king, but as an outlaw, comes before the people on all fours, confessing himself a beast with no less impudence than imprudence, the mare being immediately killed and cut in pieces and boiled, a bath is prepared for him from the broth. Sitting, sitting in this, he eats of the flesh which is brought to him, the people standing round or partaking of it also. Yeah, think of this scene as this is my blood, this is my flesh. Jesus H. Christ was a horse. Think of this scene. <laughs> think of this scene. Sitting in this, he eats of the flesh which is brought to him, the people standing around or partaking of it also. He is required to drink of the broth in which he is bathed, not drawing it in any vessel or even in his hand, but lapping it up with his mouth. There you go, my flesh and my blood. These unrighteous rites being duly accomplished, his royal dominion and authority are, are ratified. In other words, the king has assumed the form of a stallion in order to mate with the territorial goddess and thus ensure her beneficence and his own virility as well as that of his people and land. 
One wonders whether the chalk figure at Uffington, the famous white horse beside the Belgic hill fort, is not in fact the Gaulish goddess herself in horse form. Yep. There are still current there are still current in the area traditions of the good luck that will accrue from urinating on the figure and no doubt in earlier times sexual intercourse there would be regarded as an act bound to bring good fortune as in the case of the CERN giant. Interesting. It's called CERN. C-E-R-N-E. And then the Large Hadron Collider is also called CERN without the E. Interesting. Which is basically a big circle <laughs> where they collide particles and produce a big ass sound wave energy. The similarity of the Irish inaugural rite as described by Giraldus to one anciently practiced in India another Indo-European country is noteworthy. How is there a connection, I wonder, with India and all the way to Ireland? I wonder, how? How is there a connection? Hmm. This rite was known as Asvameda and likewise concerned a horse sacrifice. Here it is the chief wife of the king who actually mates with a stallion which was then sacrificed. Horse sacrifice is well known in the Celtic world. The animal was only eaten ritually. One thinks of the innumerable horse remains which archaeologically brings to light and of the carefully placed horse heads in the ritual pits, wells and shafts which were such a feature of, peg of pagan Celtic religion. So the horse is also a zodiac symbol. Pegasus is one of the zodiac symbols, right? Or one of the star constellations. We worshipped stars. Zodiac symbols up in the night sky. So as above, so below. And we had to play out the drama of the events taking going on up in heaven in the night sky. When we played it out down here because... Hey man, the seasons control our life, right? The cross, season, four seasons. It's 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 as above, so below, whether you like it or not. Okay. One thinks of the innumerable innumerable horse remains which archaeologically brings to light, and of the carefully placed horse heads in the ritual pits. Wells and shafts, which were such a feature of pagan Celtic religion. These may likewise have been beasts used in inaugural customs and slain after union with the king. It is extremely interesting to note that it is only in the Celtic world and in India that horse sacrifice has this strongly sexual association. Celtic world and in India. Interesting, isn't it? All the way to Ireland to India. Hmm. This is not the only feature the two cultures have in common and some genuine connections must be assumed. We must now consider a class of Celtic goddesses whose appearances in the literary tradition may help to cast some light on a series of enigmatic female figures known in Ireland as Sheila Nagigs. 
Sheila Nagigs. They also occur in Britain and in German Switzerland. Their significance may be more subtle and archaic than their crudely sexual appearance would necessarily suggest. Some of these carvings would appear to be early in date, others seem clearly to be much later. All show similar characteristics, although some are cruder and more unpleasant than others. They portray a woman with an ugly, leering countenance, naked, legs usually apart, while her head while her hands indicate her genital organs. These are frequently grossly exaggerated, demonstrating her strong sexuality. In Britain and sometimes in Ireland as well, they are connected with churches, which seems strange unless one takes into, consider into consideration the evidence of the Irish tales. Yeah, Jordan Maxwell said that the nunneries at first were the brothels, right, for the, for the priests. This is perhaps twofold. Both the powerful group of war goddesses with their bird transformations and their strongly sexual characteristics and the territorial goddess herself ritually mating with the king-elect are on occasion described in the tales in a way which is an almost exact parallel to the imagery of these enigmatic Sheila figures. Yeah, even in uh, back in the day, in the temples, right? They would be called the holy prostitutes, right? For example, the war goddess, whose beauty can be astonishing, can figure as a dreadful hag. One typical description occurs in the tale, The Destruction of Dadurga's Hostel, in which the fated king Conair the Red, son of a divine birdman, meets his death. All the forces of the supernatural gather to destroy him. This could be like sun mythology. Conair the Red is basically the sun. Hmm. Yeah, because volcanic eruption, sky gets turned dark, sun disappears, so that gets mythologized as the sun got killed. Okay, on one occasion, the three war goddesses are described as being stark naked on the ridge pole of the house. They are red with blood. There you go, it's Kali, volcano. In the same tale, one of the three war goddesses comes towards the king. As Conair was going to Dadurga's hostel, a man with black cropped hair with one hand and one eye and one foot overtook them. A pig black bristled, singed, was on his back, squealing continually, and a woman, big-mouthed, huge, dark, ugly, hideous, was behind him. Yeah, volcano, black sky, sun, dies. Though her snout were flung on a branch, the branch would support it. Her pudenda reached to her knees. The war goddess, the Morgan, wishes the semi-divine hero, Ku Kulain, to have intercourse with her. He refuses, and she determines to, to destroy him. Likewise, the territori territorial goddess, when she wishes to test the king-elect, comes to him in the form of a most, loath most loathsome hag, 
seeking to have sexual intercourse with them, if he accepts her blandishments, thereby proving that he has the makings of a king in, in him, she turns in, instantly into a, ra into a radiantly lovely woman, the divine sovereignty of the territory, and by mating with him, confers on him his royalty and blesses his reign. It's basically like the Shrek story. Traces of such an encounter are found even in modern Scottish Scottish Gaelic folk tradition when the man who is brave enough to take on the hideous hag finds himself in the presence of a young woman of unworldly beauty. This also like kind of has similar themes in the story of um, Ruth in the Bible. Ruth, right? When she went to find a husband... Um, was it Ruth or? Anyways, um, it would seem to be a reasonable explanation for the so-called Sheila figures that they are in fact portrayals of the ancient goddess, war or territorial, long remembered in the traditions and festivals of the people. Many of them have local names and the goddess in her hideous and sexual form with her pronounced genital organs would be a highly apotropic talisman. Belief in the power of the exposed genitalia of either sex to avert evil powers is widespread. Once Christianity was established in Ireland and elsewhere, the powers believed to be inherent in such pagan figures would be tapped, as it were, by the church and used to keep malevolent forces away from the sacred dwellings and from the tracks across dangerous country where many of them stood. One Sheila figure housed in St. Michael's Church, Oxford, would seem to date from Roman times... Um, would seem to date from Roman times... Another early figure of this kind is built into the wall of Ampney, St. Peter. Yet another was found in association with St. Ives Priory, Huntington, Dunshire. Huntingdonshire. One comes from York Yorkshire and one from the church at Rodill, Outer Hebrides. One which clearly belongs to the church occurs at Kilpeck, Herodfordshire, a building full of symbolism of a pagan nature. Another stone in Ireland known locally as Kalek Geragen, another hag goddess consisting of a head alone, has strongly evil and ugly features, curiously decorated with lines which add to its sinister appearance. It glares out from the wall of the church at Clana Philip County Cavan, once again no doubt holding evil at bay by means of its female powers. Yeah, I mean, um, Volcano, Mother Nature, Kali, it's just the fucking raw energy of nature to fucking take life away but it also gives life so yeah it, it no volcano no life on this planet no 
no females on this planet, no life on this planet. A splendid passage in the Irish tale, the sons of Eokaid Mugmedon, Eokaid Mugmedon, will serve to illustrate this dual nature of the strongly powerful, highly sexual goddess, both in hag form and in her guise of womanly loveliness. When the brothers of Nial of the nine hostages encountered her at the well they saw, an old woman guarding it, thus was the hag, every joint and limb of her from the top of her head to the earth was as black as coal. Like the tail of a wild horse was the gray top of her head to the earth. No, like the tail of a wild horse was the gray bristly mane that came through the upper part of her head crown. The green branch of an oak in bearing would be severed by the sickle of green teeth that lay in her head and reached to her ears. Dark smoky eyes she had, a nose crooked and hollow, she had a middle fibrous spotted with pustules, diseased and shins distorted and awry. Yes, yeah, Snow White. The witch in Snow White, right? Her ankles were thick, her shoulder blades were broad, her knees were big, and her nails were green. Loathsome in truth was the hag's appearance. Wonder if this is also just talking about geography. Like a geographic um, description of a certain location. Okay, it is no wonder that each of them turned and ran when she asked them for a kiss in exchange for water. Nial finally goes to the well himself. Give me water, O woman, said Nial. I will give it, she answered, but first give me a kiss. Besides giving you a kiss, I will lie with you. Then he threw himself down upon her and gave her a kiss. But then there was not a woman in the world whose figure or appearance was more lovable than hers. Like the snow in trenches was every bit of her from head to soul. From head to soul. Plump and queenly forearms she had. Fingers long and slender. Calves straight and beautiful. Two blunt shoes of white bronze between her little soft white feet and the ground. A costly purple mantle she wore, with a brooch of bright silver in the cloth of the mantle. Shining pearly teeth she had, an eye large and queenly, and lips red as rowan berries. That is many-shaped, O lady, said the youth. I am sovereignty of Erin. She answered, and then she said, As you have seen me loathsome, bestial, horrible at first, and beautiful at last, so is the sovereignty. The fertility aspect of wells is known. In conjunction with this powerful divine hag, the water must indeed have possessed potency according to belief. One is reminded of the relief from Caraburg, Caraburg in Northumberland, from the well sacred to the to the Celtic goddess Coventina. Coventina. The naked goddess appears with two companions, perhaps herself in triple form, in the act of washing. 
or of the relief from Corbridge of the same goddess in single form, floating on the water, benign and calm, guardian of the fertile spring in her gracious aspect. Her more rapacious character, however, is revealed by the male skull recovered from the well. Kind of like Kali and uh, her nicer form was it Kali and Shakti, right? I think, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. The same type of Celtic goddess, nurturer and destroyer, is figured on the silver cauldron from Gundestrup Jutland, Jutland, dating from the second century BC. Yeah, volcano. Kali, destruction, then turns into a mountain, snow-covered mountain, that gives rivers of life, waters of life flowing down as rivers. You get the chaos, then you get the order. You get the ugly side, then you get the beautiful side. You, you get the... Uh, uh, she giveth... No, she taketh away, and then she giveth. It's just... Just geography, man, I think. Okay. Recovered from the site where it had been placed as an offering, but of more easterly Celtic manufacture, it portrays cult figures and cult scenes from the pagan Celtic world. One goddess, whose body terminates beneath the breast, sits grim-faced and powerful. The fact that she holds a raven on her upraised right hand may suggest a link with the war goddesses. Two eagles and a wolf-like beast are portrayed. One woman dresses her hair into stranded tresses, and another, equally forbidding of aspect, sits rigidly on her right shoulder. The fact that below her bare breasts lie a dog and a man suggests that she was a great goddess of fertility, nurturer of beasts and men alike, a deity similar to the Irish Anu, Mother of the gods themselves. Could have been a shamaness. Another goddess figures, another goddess figures on one of the inner plaques of the cauldron. Her hair is similarly dressed and she too wears the sacred torque about her neck. Her breasts are bare, she is surrounded by beasts and this place, and this places her in the same sort of category of goddesses as the Irish Flidais, mistress of wild things, queen of the woodland realms. Two other fierce goddesses adorn the cauldron. What does cauldron, uh, what does a cauldron symbolize? Or at least, what does that image make you think of? The, the gods coming out of the cauldron, so, I mean, <laughs> Like volcanoes, the gods coming out of the volcanoes. Like the the gods are symbols of just different aspects of life giving forces, right? So, I mean, you could that's one way of viewing it. Okay, torque wearing and with the same hairstyle, one has a male and female worshiper above her, their hands raised in the Oran's attitude. Her breasts are likewise naked. The other has her arms crossed below small and very high-set breasts. Above her left shoulder, 
is a young man leaping or aiming a blow at something. Above her right shoulder, another young man fights with a beast, scenes which we cannot hope to interpret today, but which must have had some bearing on the cult legends of these deities and the mythologies to which they belonged. I mean, it could all be like symbolic astrotheology too, like, it could just be like the drama of the stars portrayed in this uh, figurine. Celtic art then has two forms, that of the Latin phase, aristocratic, cryptic, and elusive, and that which it shares with the rest of the barbaric Europe, naturalistic, crude, direct. The first may contain allusions to sex and fertility in its, in its flowing curves and sharp, keen angles, but we have no documentation to assist in an interpretation of these forms. And I'm just saying, if you have a volcanic winter, then your your beliefs, your psyche, your creation stories, your stories in general will um, take all sorts of uh, sharp angles, right? In... <laughs> In their expression. People will try all kinds of things, right? To bring back the sun, basically. The second is concerned with matters fundamental to life and its continuity. With sexual symbolism and fertility emblems. Phalli, ithophallic, and sometimes horned men. Pregnant women and breast symbols. Like, let's say you have a volcanic winter. You're going crazy trying to, like, make sense out of things that are going on. You, you're you running around for food, water, resources, shelter, okay? Then your tribe, your population dwindles. Then let's say the sun starts to come up. So now you need to bring back the population, right, size. So you need to basically fuck a lot. So it's like, it's just the cycle of nature of this planet, right? She gives, she takes away. It's, it's, I don't think it's that complicated. Okay. It's just that we haven't been through one of these in a while, so we forgot. But, uh, well, she's coming back to remind us, to remind us where we belong in this cycle of, uh, life and death. Okay. Um,. The second is, is concerned with matters fundamental to life and its continuity with sexual symbolism and fertility emblems, phalli, ithophallic, and sometimes horned men, pregnant women, and breast symbols. But the repertoire is, lim- is limited. We must never interpret as mere erotica images which in these barbarian societies were related directly to their preoccupation with the struggle for survival and hence with their own fertility and that of their beasts and crops. I mean, volcanic winter, ice ages, sun disappears, population decreases. Then you get all kinds of stuff to bring back the sun, giver of life, warmth, food. So then, let's say after that, so the planet has been... um, 
blessed with uh, fertilizer, which is volcanic ash. Sun comes back up. Ice starts to melt. Plenty of water, sunlight, and plenty of fertilizers. So now you have uh, the agricultural age, right? I mean, the, the volcanic winter probably also dwindled down the animal population because they don't got food to eat. So the hunter-gathering style, lifestyle kind of took a hit. So now you come into agricultural lifestyle, plenty of food, then, you know, that then you go from there. It's, it's like, I don't think it's that complicated. Well, um, time is a circle. We are on a merry-go-round on <laughs> riding these magical horses or animals, going in a circle, and the heavens determine the drama that will get played down here on Earth. As above, so below. So we'll see. Maybe um, I think it's it's like I think it works like clockwork. Like really, like there's nothing new under the sun. The heavens determine the drama being played out down here on Earth. And just like clockwork, I think these volcanoes start popping off. To basically, it's, I don't know, it's, it's like nature will keep doing what it's been doing. And she's not gonna take shit from nobody. Like, you can't stop a fucking volcano. You can't go pray to Jesus or any any god. Tell him to stop a volcano from exploding. So, yeah, we are just ants on lily pads. The mountains are basically natural barriers that um, funnel us into certain migration patterns because of the search for resources, water, food, animals, geography, climate, weather. These are things much bigger than, uh, <laughs> than us little ants on lily pads, so... We'll see what happens. I mean, I'm just trying to connect the dots, find the patterns, collect the images, set the sequence of the images to make sense of things. I'm not saying I got it all figured out. I'm just saying everything I'm looking at, everything I've looked at, and then just pointing out the patterns. So... We'll see what happens. All right. Peace, monkeys. Peace.